What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Boardroom Out of Office Podcast. Here, as always, with my man Gianni. What's up? What's up? And today, we have a, uh, a guest from the world of tennis and business, somebody that I'm excited to speak to. She's a former world number one. She holds a career Grand Slam, winning Wimbledon, French, U.S. Open, Australian. If it was up to me, I'd want to win the U.S. Open first just because I'm from New York. But damn, she won all four. She's earned over $40 million in prize money. But beyond that, she's become this incredibly successful and savvy businesswoman, and I'm just pumped to talk to her. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, Maria Sharapova. Hello, hello. Hey, guys. How are you? I'm great. I'm, I'm doing well. Back in New York City, um, slightly afraid of the noise that might come through from the streets of the city, but I'm, I'm happy to be on. Thanks for having me. No, thank you. And we're in the city as well, so this feels good. This feels like a real New York edition of our podcast. Um, so I want to ask you a question, and I've asked um, everyone that's come on in a different way, uh, but I think as it relates to athletes, and I've talked to Kevin about this a lot, is there a point in your life, and, or I'm sure there is, what point in your life do you remember mentally and physically just making that commitment to being a professional tennis player? It was never a moment on which I sat down or I spoke to someone and said, and this is what I am going to do. And from now on, I'm going to commit myself. It was a, it was this line of, you know, my father played sport. He wasn't very good, although he thought he was. I followed him around. I played a little tennis and all of a sudden the local coaches noticed that I was good. And from that moment on, I, I had this, like deep focus and every time I would pick up a tennis racket and it was a game to me like it was a game to improve it was a game to beat anyone across the net and from that point on from the age of five that was the commitment it was like an internal promise and a love that I had and you know how lucky am I to have found something that I was able to call a love from that young of an age and tough love <laughs> during many points of my career. Um, physically, I, I was never the strongest. I was never, I, was, I, I grew quickly. No one in my family was tall. I became 6'2 at the age of 18 and I was so lost. Like, Tennis was, I was good because I was so mentally strong and I challenged myself to be even better every day. I worked hard at it. I was talented. People considered me a prospect, but I, I had to put in twice as much for the, in the work than the talent in order to be great. So, but I'd say the moment I really committed to physicality was when I started getting injured because otherwise it was when you're young, it all comes so naturally and you just keep doing it. You wake up, you have a tough match, you wake up the next morning and you feel fine, you're not sore. You get in your early 20s, late 20s, and, and things shift, the body changes. Did you know, though, like that this skill you had and that you were beating everybody across the net from you, you kept going, you kept going. I assume you just were so laser-focused that you just competed with who was in front of you next. Was there ever a time where you realized or saw that what was happening was that tennis was something that could take you out of you know what you were uh what you were living in at that time yeah so i never i never reached the point where i was beating everyone every day every match and i think that's what i i didn't like about it in the moment but i think that's what helped me improve and one of the things i did as i started playing junior tournaments from the age of nine um, was every weekend there was another tournament, another tournament, and you would go in these age divisions. It was under 10, then under 12, then under 14. And my my dad, who was my coach at the time, he never th believed that I needed to be number one in an age group. He wanted me to get to a certain level and then move up so that others would start beating me, and I needed to improve and see what those weaknesses were in order to keep going. So when you went to... Um when you went to Florida, you went to IMG, right? I did, yes. Was that cool? I always dreamt that like I had a, a I, love, I wanted to go to Nick Boletari so badly as a kid. 
I wouldn't say it's cool. <laughs> That's not the first word I'd, I'd use to describe it. I, I remember it being cool from a perspective that I was in the United States of America and I spent the first six years of my life in Russia and things were difficult. Like life was difficult. Things don't come easy. Groceries, transportation, the, sim the simplicity of life um, that you can have in the United States um, didn't exist for, for my family in Russia. So making that transition and being at this academy where you have a cafeteria and you have some of the best coaches in the world and you have other kids to play against, um, it was the perfect environment for me in which I could improve and get better. But cool wasn't the right word. Well, <laughs> I, I, what I thought was cool about it was that like, I knew if you went there, you were so good. Like you were so good at something and, and maybe there were kids or there. Yeah. You were either good or you, or you had a family with a lot of money. Yeah. There you go. Well, I had neither. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever make it there? No, I never made it there. I've been to IMG in moving on in my life. I went there with athletes I was working with. It's incredible. It's exactly what I thought it would look like, but I'm sure the experience right. was really grueling. And, but did you, did you feel that pressure when you got there or was it nothing compared to what, like you said, the environment back home was? The pressure that I felt was because we weren't as financially secure moving to the United States as we were when we were still living in Russia you know, a dollar in, in Russia gets you a little more than a dollar does in the United States, especially, um, you know, in the early 90s. So I felt that because I, I could sense that, you know, my, my dad was doing strange jobs and golf course work and construction and supermarket stuff in order to, you know, make sure that we weren't on a flight back in, in a few weeks. So I found that challenging. But it was never established that I had to be the provider for that. And I, and I think that's what gave me the freedom to continue and, and to make mistakes and to lose and to not feel the pressure of consistently having to prove to someone something. And, you know, the one, the main gift that my, my parents gave me from a young age was they never established what success looked like. Um, I didn't watch much TV. I didn't watch many of the championship matches. I didn't have many idols growing up, most likely because I didn't really watch them. Um, and they never said, you have to be a Wimbledon champion. If you want to continue the sport, this is what success should look like or will look like. I determined what my success looked like. I had dreams and goals. And of course, I knew of the US Open. I knew that if you were put on a schedule at, at the U.S. Open at 7.30 p.m., that there was something on the line. Like, I knew I wanted to be there, but mentally, the trophies were never put in front of me. And, and I think that's what, that was, looking back, that, that was a really nice gift. It is. And, I'll, you know, I have two daughters that are 11 and 7, and I take them to play tennis on Saturday and Sunday, or at one point it was basketball. And it's not a commitment for me to do it. I enjoy doing it. It's my daughter's. But there's days where I'm like, oh, it's raining. You know, I don't even know if she loves it. You know, like that kind of feeling. Whereas mm -hmm. it's incredible that your dad moved with you. I read right to the U.S. He said he's working all of these odd jobs or whatever they were to, to just make ends meet and make up the difference between what your new reality was financially, but also didn't put pressure on you. And when some parents do, when times are tough, I don't even necessarily think poorly of that. I think there's levels to it. But like, I know KD's mom was, you know, if you want to be in the NBA, we got to get up in a very um, right. healthy way, I think. But your dad didn't even put pressure, just kind of gave you the platform to, and, and told you that if you don't yeah. put the work in, you won't get there though. He provided the platform and the tools and, and the guidance and the road. And when, when we see the young phenoms of so many different sports, it, it, it's, it, it's not easy to, to see them immediately, but I always, I say, wow, that, that kid is so talented. They're so young, but I'm immediately afraid, not because of their talent and potential, but because of the, the roads, the incorrect guidance that they may receive five, 10 years down the line. And, and that's what scares me. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, 
I, I Gianni and I were talking about this earlier. So basketball players come out of high school, and that's considered crazy. Uh, or not crazy, but it's considered rare, and it's a rare set of circumstances. But tennis, more than any sport and maybe any business for that matter, you know, you if you're going to be an elite professional around 14, 15, 16, younger than any other sport, business, you have that's when you turn pro. Um, so was there, did you ever, when you're in the United States now, were you just like, oh, like, were you exposed to things now and start thinking like, damn, I could do all this other stuff too in the U.S. or was just stayed focused? No, not at all. I, I had horse blinders on from a very young age and I just saw, I had a very clear understanding of what it would take. Um, and I think that was because of being in that academy, which at the time I called the sausage factory because <laughs> it was so routine and everyone had a very similar process. There's a few groups that had individual practices and extra care and extra hours on the court and, and a different type of program. But ultimately, you were part of the same system in a factory. But I do think that it, it, it showed me the amount of work and the hours that I needed to, to put in. And otherwise I, I wouldn't be where I was. Um, I don't know. It, it's interesting looking back at that time because it, it's as if I didn't have other options. Like that was my only option. I didn't have other sports I was playing. I mean, I did, I did a few boxing classes and that was for my game, for my tennis. I did some gymnastics and then I remember six months later, I stopped growing and my parents were like, get her out of there. <laughs> this is not. <laughs> and everything, all those little bits and pieces of other sports were meant to make me a little stronger, a little more explosive, a little more mobile. So those were some of the things that I was lacking. Um, I had great hand-eye coordination. Um, I had this competitive spirit, um, relentlessness when I was competing. Um, but the physicality wasn't a natural aspect of my game. When you're one of the best business minds in all of sports, I'm saying that in terms of what an athlete has built and the way in which they've built it. Did you even have that? Um, was it floating in your mind at that point? Like when you were almost like revving up to be a pro, did you realize there was a, that aspect of it? I knew that money was part of the equation. And there was significant income opportunities. There was revenue streams and not just from prize money. But I never knew what that looked like. I, like not even ballpark numbers. I didn't know if it was in the 5,000s or the hundreds of thousands. Like no one, like who would establish that for me? You know, there's no playbook on what that looks like. And every sport and every career is different. But during the time when I was playing, I... I got to be associated with pretty cool brands like blue chip companies that you know were incredible being part of meetings where I was in charge of a marketing campaign where I was in charge of a collection. Um, and it was also a time when I realized that I wasn't good at a lot of these things and you know, being focused on this one craft and being fairly good at it, which was the sport it was very humbling to sit in rooms and especially boardrooms where I wasn't the smartest. I wasn't the best. And part of that is, is business. Like I learned in those meetings. I mean, I sat in multiple Nike negotiations and a lot of the company, um, you know, deal flows, deal sheets. I, I was a part of it. I wanted to see them. Um, and even my dad was, I mean, he sat in some of the most important um, decision-making meetings and he didn't come from a background, but he had, he had my best intention and he had my back and that, and I think through those moments, I learned that tennis was not just a sport. When you turn, so when you turn pro, I, I what, what age is that? Like where you were like, okay, I'm a pro tennis player. I think I was 13. <laughs> God. That's pretty crazy. Or 14. And do you remember meeting people outside of your dad that were now responsible for like what that meant? Yeah. So when I was 11 years old um, and I was training at the, at the IMG Academy, which at the time was still the Voluntary Academy, IMG ended up buying it from Nick. But 
I was playing a practice match on a backcourt, like, I don't know, there's like hundreds of courts. It must have been like court 58. <laughs> and, and I remember this younger individual coming out and, and, and watch the entire, my entire practice match, which is rare. Like no one has the time, um, the concentration for it, especially not an agent. You know, they're, they're in, they're out um, really quickly. And I remember this guy was there from the beginning to the end. And I shook hands with my opponent. I don't remember if I won or lost the match, but I remember exiting the court and I was talking to my dad about how I played. and. Max Eisenbud um, was his name, and he came up to my father and me and said, "Hi, I'm Max. I'm a new agent at IMG, and from that day, he's been my manager. Till this day, he—I mean, at that time, he did my international visas when I would have to play a tournament in Europe, to doing my first Nike deal, to you know, still being on the job. I haven't fired him yet." <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. You know, I've met, I, I think what we're building here is rare and, and I think it is to a degree, but I've been able to meet some people recently who have had similar relationships. Um, actually had the privilege of meeting Adele Gianni and I did the other day. And I, I literally just said, you have a flawless rollout in career. And she instantly was like, I've had the same manager from the beginning. We have an incredible partnership. Um, and even hearing how long you and Max have been together, I do think that there's some, consistency in those relationships and then a business having such a great foundation and being built so well. Yeah, And I don't, I, I do always think, and based on my experience with other team members, whether it's coaches or anyone that was a part of my career, that you do need different expertise at different times in your life and in your career, but it is, it is so nice and it is so, it's refreshing to always have someone that will always consistently tell you the truth and consistently make decisions that are for you. Um, and that's hard to do in this business and it, it, it's getting increasingly so. So to have someone that, you know, and, and he, he'll be the first one to tell you that he doesn't know everything. And, and some of the, the partnerships that I have now sometimes don't even come from him. Um, but he'll be the first person I call to get his opinion, like to have a conversation, you know, and that there, there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, for me, when you are confident in the relationship, because it's still for a manager of an artist or an agent of an athlete or an artist, um, I used to be in the music business. So sometimes I slip up. Like you're, there's still a fan in you a bit because, you know, we all came up wanting to be around sport and there's no sport without these athletes and superstar athletes and you get this opportunity. And that's where I think the unique partnerships happen, where you're confident enough in the relationship and the trust you have that you can say, all right, I don't know, you know, or all right, and, and feel comfortable enough to have you tell you know, Max, that it wasn't a good idea and for him to be comfortable with you having business come in from someone else and still be able to work with it. And, you know, there's a lot of rare qualities that has to happen in that partnership, but it is a challenge. I know when you work with an athlete, when you entered tennis though, so was, was there a goal at that point now that you're a pro, um, you know, what was the climate like at tennis when you entered? It was... I mean, at that point, I didn't know, like I didn't, I had to establish my idea of what the climate was because I, I was fairly protected from the outside world. And because I, I won a grand slam at 17 years old, which was the, the achievement itself was tough to comprehend because it was so unexpected. And with that come a lot of responsibilities and comes a lot of decision-making and a lot of money thrown your way for opportunities that are not right, that can hurt you down the line. Like, you know, invitations to events and parties and gatherings that it's so hard to say no, but I've, I've always been a big believer that you, you know, continuously have to say no in order for, in order to choose the right moments to say yes to. Like that's always been, one of my uh, better strengths, like I'm willing to give up 
mediocre things that might be, you know, that, that might seem important in the moment, you know, that might mean that it might take time to get something else in that category or a deal and, but it just doesn't feel like it's the right one. You have to say no. Yeah. You know, and it's so, when you're young, it, it is so hard to do. And that's why the, the people that are next to you are, are so crucial and so important. I mean, and it happens till this day. Like I, you know, I was in the phone with Max yesterday and he, there's a deal that came through and fairly lucrative and, and I wasn't into it. And I called him and I said, I'm not into this. <laughs> like yeah. This is not a category I'm, in, I'm interested in. And I want to be involved as an advisory role type deal. And he's like, why are you even considering it? You're going to be miserable. And this is an agent who gets a percentage of deal flow. So to have that type of, like, I knew it's not right, but he can just give me the comfort of you're making the right decision is, it's just nice. Yeah. I don't know how else to say it. But, and now, and, but the, the shift is on amongst athletes that are, you know, in this next generation because of people like yourself um, because now an athlete doesn't have to, I, I think, go through that learning curve in the beginning of like spreading their portfolio of 10 endorsement deals um, with commitments and you show up for this and show up for that. Now they're coming into their you know, professional career. I, I see now coming in thinking equity, thinking patience, thinking building a team around you. You know, because of, you know, you see what LeBron's built around him in terms of the profile of the executives in his life. All of a sudden, that starts to be something that a young athlete comes into their sport now thinking about. So it's not like just, you know, let me get every single sponsorship there is. Well, the equity play when I was still a teenager was very, very new. And, and honestly, it was all about just being a face of or just an ambassador and getting your you know your your paycheck at the end of the year and leaving the deal once that's done now the equity you know type of deal is i've only started seeing that more frequently i'd say in the last 5 to 8 years where companies are really considering that um and i don't know when you're when you're young and you can be you know, you can be smart and you can be advised really well, but I'm not sure that a young athlete really understands what an equity play really is. Oh, for sure. But I know for sure. And it's not the right time. I think that again, you know, that is, right. you're right. There is one challenge to this new generation, which is the patience and the timing can be challenged at, a challenge at times because you start asking for equity because it's a buzzword. Whereas understanding that like building wealth and taking some of these deals early on may be the right thing if authentic to you or starting to learn and educate yourself. You know, if you're 20 years old, yeah. you just educate. There are a few reasons why I took some of my first equity type deals. And I mean, l let's be honest, you first have to be in a position of a considerable finance in order for you to say, listen, I'll, I'll take the, this risk of an equity play. I don't need a guarantee and this might not become successful, right? Like you have to be in a good enough financial position in order to make that decision. And that, that doesn't come overnight. I mean, first you have to pay off the investment that you made toward your career. Then you have to get a little comfortable and then you have to be in a position where like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm willing to give up the, this time, my efforts, my, you know, my name in order to help this company grow. Now, you may also do it for the experience. Like there's a couple of deals where uh, I say, I, I want to be on this advisory board because there are some individuals that I would love to learn from. And sitting on these calls, I feel like they're bringing me value and not necessarily the other way around, although I, I do think I'm contributing. Um, but you, you do it. So you, you do it for different reasons, right? Like ultimately, of course, do we all want to benefit from a successful company? Absolutely. But for a lot of these deals, I'm learning more and I'm, I'm growing. I'm, I'm being curious. I'm challenging myself to be uncomfortable. I'm getting in rooms with people that are more knowledgeable in these fields and and I'm able to execute much better later down the line. I'm able to, to have a smarter thought process to really know 
like the nitty gritty of, of the business and ask the right questions. And, and let me tell you, that doesn't come overnight. Did your business, um, was there like a big pickup in business after Wimbledon, the first Grand Slam? There was, but none of it was, a majority of it was an ambassador type deal. You know, my, my first big Nike contract came after, you know, winning Wimbledon. I had a contract with, with Motorola with the new flip phone, the, the Razor <laughs> at the time. You know, it was, I was the cool, I, I remember um, I came to New York City right after that victory to do the whole press tour, which is also new to me. And Motorola gave me their, one of their first 20 phones that they gave to their executives. And I was sitting at, uh, some fancy sushi spot in the city. And this guy was like, who paid for your phone? Like, how did you get your phone? I was like, I swear I did not pay. <laughs> no one. <laughs> they just gave it to me. <laughs> I wanted to say I just won Wimbledon. That's how I got it. Yeah. But <laughs> I didn't. The flip phone was incredible, man. The design of the cell phones, the razor, the flip phone, those were incredible. That was a fun time. Yeah. Was there, I mean, another reason why I think young athletes need to understand as they come in to being a professional, the patience aspect of it is understanding how to balance the reason why these opportunities are in front of you um, and making sure like you finish your breakfast first, right? Handle what you have to handle on the court. Was that tough for you? Yeah, that's a tough one. Maria, I want to ask you, earlier in your career, is there a tennis player that's kind of guiding you along or someone you're looking up to, like, helping you with your decision-making or anything like that? There really wasn't. And it, it is, as I look back, it's surprising because I, I was training at an academy that had a lot of, a lot of players come through. But I was, I, I was so intimidated by everyone. You know, there was Marcelo Rios, who was incredibly talented, and Mary Pierce, and um, you know, Andre Agassi, but I, I would be that like little kid amongst hundreds of them watching them practice. And, and I just find them, you know, find myself in awe of their ability and their talent and, and how they see the ball and their positioning on the court. And just like this focus is this endless focus that they had for two hours on the court, like no breaks, ball after ball after ball. Like that's, that was my inspiration, you know, seeing all those athletes come through the academy, but not a, not one mentor that really um, helped shape my path. Was there camaraderie in general on the women's tour in, or is there today? Was there when you entered? It was harder for me to achieve that. You know, that's for sure because I, I became successful so quick. And not many people, I didn't know many people, not many people knew me. I, I went through, you know, usually there's a stage of, you know, the, your competitors are scouting you, are understanding your game. And it's not that I came out of nowhere, but in 18 months, I went from being probably just under 100 in the world to being top 10 in the world. And there was someone that, oh, maybe maybe we could be friends with this girl, you know, and see her grow up to, whoa, she's taking our spot. <laughs> like she's, she's there, like she's yeah. passing us. So it's tough to establish that for me. And I always considered like, the courts and the site and the locker room. Like, that was my playing field, right? That was, that was my office. And when I entered those courts and I entered that arena, like I was there to do a job. Like I had a team and I had my coach and, and I had guidance and I, like my mission was to win. And so until I left the courts, like I was again, mm -hmm. horse blinders, like very focused on my mission, very focused on my attitude. I always focused on the things that I could control. Like, you know, the, the first ball, my mentality, you know how how positive or negative I was like all those th all those little moments that I felt I had control over like that was up to me and and that's the business that I wanted to take care of
so at your like at the peak of your playing career uh you talked about this focus in your team and your trainer what was a day like like what was your routine and schedule I mean, the best part of the day was the morning. I, I loved waking up and knowing, like you spoke briefly about balance. And to me, I had the perfect balance when I would wake up and I would put on my sports gear and I would put on my outfit to go out on the court. And the second I'd put that on, it would feel official. Like it was like out of my pajamas, straight into my, you know, my tennis shirt, my shorts or my skirt. Like I actually, when I was younger, I always practice in, in an outfit that I would play a match in. Like I couldn't understand why other girls would practice in shorts. I was like, but wait, we, we, we compete in a dress. Like we compete in a skirt. So I would always practice in like in the gear that I would compete in. Um, I didn't do that later down the line. <laughs> that, that looks slightly odd. Um, but that was my approach. Like I wanted I wanted to practice like I would play and I wanted to imitate the good and the bad, like even visualization to me, like before a match, I would, I wouldn't only think about knocking my opponent off the court. I wouldn't only think about power. I wouldn't only think about, you know, hitting the spots on the court. I'd also visualize the mistakes that I could potentially be making so that they wouldn't come as a surprise to me in the moment. Um, but the mornings were, were my favorite. Like I, I would wake up, I'd, I'd, I'd have the right breakfast. I, everything was around my training. And once I got, once I got together with my team, we'd usually, you know, spend the first few minutes, you know, small talk. What'd you watch last night? What'd you eat last night? Once you, once you get past the small talk, you get back to business and you discuss like what's working, what's not working. What are we, what's the game plan for the day and it was very precise and 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 I loved that I needed to have a plan I didn't want to be in the moment and question a plan I like to be prepared for what was going to happen and part of that was also being prepared to pivot like things didn't always go according to plan you might have to finish practice early or just mentally physically not in it you you know you hurt something you pull something um but usually I like to have a very clear path of what I wanted to achieve that day. And sometimes those achievements would happen in the middle of practice. I'd say like the things I miss about the sport now um, being away from it are the moments where I'd sit with my father on the bench in the middle of practice and you'd have an extended water break and not just because you feel like you need a few extra minutes, <laughs> but because he, you're in the zone, like you're in the middle of this practice and nothing else in life matters. Like in that moment, it's like your, you know, your roots, like my dad would be next to me and this, you know, my water bottle for sanity and, and just memories that would just come like piling in and you'd speak about experiences and you, you, you think of a match. Wow. Do you remember when I did that? Do you remember how, how I felt, how I moved. And I always found out of those conversations, I, I actually learned so much more than sometimes the practices themselves. So I miss that. But um, those morning practices were my favorite because I'd, I'd be one of the first few out there on the courts. And I'd, I'd, you know, when I was home, I'd, I'd practice at a country club and I mean, I'd be up before all the doubles players were playing and I'd be on that court and, and the dew would, would make the line slippery and I didn't care because I, I needed to get my hours in. Um, you know, I'd come home, I'd, I'd do all the recovery stuff and I'd come home and I'd, I'd take a nap, but naps were also a favorite part of the day. It was just part of my recovery from a young age. I knew that without them, I just couldn't get, get through the rest of the day. Um, then you'd have a physical, like the afternoons for me were more of the gym, the track, all the footwork exercises, and, uh, and then some stretching at the end of the day. So it was a packed, pretty packed day. It's packed, and it's amazing to hear you reflect on it because um, that's the journey. All those like behind the scenes, the people that are never going to get the spotlight, but that were really part of it. You know, like when you're watching it on TV, people like glamorize, 
you know, the storylines and the narratives of like these moments, but the, the people that were in it with you every day in that journey, those are all your memories. And that's like where all the emotion I'm sure like comes from was the, were the injuries, how early did you start having injuries in your career? So I had one really bad injury in my shoulder and that was partially due to the fact that I was so loose jointed. So my my arm on, on my service motion would go back so far, um, which actually gave my SERP so much fluidity and so much power, but in the end hurt me because it started, uh, it started scratching on the surface of my tendons. So I knew I had a problem. I, I won my third grand slam a few weeks after start. Something wasn't right. Um, you know, got misinformed on a few of my first exams, kept playing with it, continued to know that something just wasn't right. Ended up seeing, um, you know, a doctor in New York getting operated on and then, you know, being part of this rehab process, which was incredibly daunting, like with no guarantees in sight, with no in real understanding if I'd ever come back on the court, let alone the level that I had just won my third grand slam with. So that was certain that, that was the first time where I was like, wow, you know, you feel so invincible when you're when you do something so consistently and regularly, and then all of a sudden it's taken away from you. Um and then I, I actually continue, I continued playing. I had to change a lot of things with my serve, which was a real struggle because it went from being a strength of mine to a weakness um, to getting it you know, back little by little, but never at the speed that it once was. Um, you know, won two more Grand Slams at the French Open and then again started tearing that, that tendon that started causing a lot of pain in the last two years, which was... Yeah, that was the time when I realized that I was spending more time on my body, more time on my recovery than than doing what I loved, which was competing. When you was it during that time, do you think that you really like did you during that time lock in on business a bit more or start to like think a bit more about after tennis and some perspective on it? Yeah, I think those moments definitely open up a a can of perspective and what you've reached and and what you've accomplished and what you want to do with that accomplishment and whether that's in, in, in the way that you're in your growth and your confidence and how financially secure you are. Um, that was the, that, that was the time where I, I felt like, okay, well, I've been part of a few brands. I was never making the final decisions at the end of the day. I was a small piece of it, an important piece of it, but never the ultimate decision maker. And I think, my competitive spirit wanted a little bit more in business. That's when I, I'd say I became what they call an entrepreneur. <laughs> I started, I, uh, I founded a candy brand. Um, that was when the first idea came to my mind that I wanted to just capture. I wanted to fund. I wanted to be the, the decision maker. I wanted to be the creator, the creative. Um, I wanted to form my own team and, that's where it kind of started. That's where the business juices started flowing. So I, the, the candy business is so cool to me. I, I think it's an <laughs> incredible business in general. Um, there's like two big ones in New York as well. Like in the city, I've seen it a bit. And then I've heard about yours forever. Tell me how you put that in place. Like I love the idea of starting a brand and seeing it come to fruition, have it be like every bit of your DNA, which I think you did so well with that brand, um, mm. beyond just the name. How did you put that <laughs> in place, and, um, and what was the game plan? So Sugar Pova came from my love of sweets and growing up in, in, in the back wall of my grandmother's kitchen and asking my father for a sweet treat after a good good day of practice and he would my favorite was a bounty bar because you had two pieces to it so you could like eat one and then save another for another day <laughs> and when i moved to the united states i saw the selection of gummies and like sour worms and i was like well that I, I don't know where this type of candy came from but that doesn't exist back home and i started doing market research on 
branding, on packaging. I would just run up and down of aisles in all like retail stores all around the country, all around the world. And one thing I noticed was how badly designed they all were, especially in the gummy world. Like it was a package that you'd buy for 98 cents and you tear up and you'd, you'd eat on your way to the car. Like now I wanted to create something that I could take back to my friends that I could gift um, and that I could indulge in myself. So that's, that was the basis of it. And what is the business today? What's the scope of it? The candy business. Yeah. So we are, um, we are found in retail stores around the world. We're in Michael's at Dick's and Hudson news. We are in, um, and we have a, a chocolate bar, Dollar General. Um, we are also a direct-to-consumer brand um, online. And we continue to carry gummies, which are made with natural ingredients now. We pivoted that in the last couple of years, which was um, a, an interesting pivot because that's where the world, and the, as the consumer is becoming more knowledgeable, so should brands and so should founders. Um, and resources were becoming more available um, at the price points that we were looking for. So that was a fun journey. It took two years to go from artificial flavors and colors to all natural gummies. Um, we also have chocolate bars and, uh, and truffles and chocolate covered gummies, which are my favorite. Love gummies. <laughs> we have to get you some. Can't believe we ha you haven't you don't have any as we're doing this interview. No, I was actually going to say this. I didn't want to overstep, but I was going to ask if we could stock our Done. cabinets in our new office with candy. That would be sick. Done deal. And there's no one really here because it's voluntary for everyone right now to come in, understandably, but Gianni and I are in every day, so we'll be, we'll be indulging. <laughs> you can have it all. We can have it all. Um, <laughs> when you hit a low point in your career, and I'll just put it like that, and I don't even yep. know if it was a low point, um, but I am making that assumption. Where were you in, like, where was your head at that point? Because you now were building this business. Um, you started your business um, a bunch of years before, I assume, the suspension, right? So mm -hmm. um, where were you? Were you worried about business at all? Were you focused on tennis? What was your mind like at that point? Yeah, I was still very much in the in the thick of my career, I was, I had already been struggling with the shoulder for, well, for quite some time, maybe a year or so. So, you know, going to traveling to a lot of doctors around the world and New York and California and Germany and trying to find a solution to keep me going for a few more years. Um, but yeah, that, that's where I was. I, I was definitely, when I was younger, I, I thought like in the perfect world that I would retire by the time I was 30. I just, I, I didn't, I thought I'd give it everything I had. And I don't, I didn't think that I would have more um, because of just the physicality of the sport and then the toll that it takes on your body. And, and the, that thought process was very much in line with the, that time frame. Although I retired when I was 32, the last, you know, couple years, it was, you know, it was all focused on my body and not the game, which was the, the biggest struggle. When you retired, mentally were you were you done too playing or were you pissed that you just physically couldn't do it anymore? I it's funny, I haven't yet felt the emotion of pissed, <laughs> which I don't know if it's funny, but it, maybe that makes it right. Um, I was I was sad for a few reasons. Um, one being that I had just started working with a team in Italy that I just loved. Like I I loved my coach. Um, I loved the entire team that was behind it, um, and I really wanted to succeed with them. And you you get that feeling with like teammates because you know that they commit so much of, of their life to to your craft and a lot of their success depends on yours but i like when i started working with them i knew that they were the right people but at the wrong time like it was it was too late so there's a piece of me that that felt bad that i couldn't achieve you know greatness with them um 
but it also but because i in, like i liked their company and i liked who they were as people and as individuals it also gave me a peace of mind that i was ending my career with people that would respect my decision so that was the greatest yeah i think that was that was the sadness that i felt um yeah and and also my um i met my boyfriend 3 years ago and and he's seen me go through you know the, the ups and downs and mostly the struggles in my career and never quite um you know he saw me play a few times when he could when he was not working but he never really had the chance to see me at my best um you know which which would have been nice but those are relatively and compared to all the other um feelings like i could have um those are the two that that stick you know are, are in my mind those are really dope answers honestly i'm just because <laughs> i you know Thanks. i really like that um it's so it's like it's cool consistently i see like uh i don't know if selfless i mean i do think it's very selfless but it's also like what you care about a lot is like the people around you and how they're feeling in those times and those memories with them. Those are just really dope answers. Thank you. Is there like a match or a set that you just look back at and you're just like, everything went right. I couldn't have done anything better. Hmm. Yes. There were, I, I think I played my best grand slam. Um, the year that I had shoulder surgery at the Australian open is the grand slam, the third grand slam that I won. And I remember going into the, the tournament, I was, you know, when you feel like you're ready, but I'm, I'm, I'm a external pessimist. Like I won't, I won't tell anyone that I feel good about things. I won't, I won't express it. I think it's the Russian superstitions, <laughs> superstitions <laughs> in me that just don't want to <laughs> uh, be upfront about it. But I felt like I was ready. I had a great off season that just was, went seamlessly, no injuries, no setbacks. And the draw comes out and fairly good first round, relatively speaking. And then second round, if we both win, is Lindsay Davenport. And she's like, when you're playing Lindsay Davenport on a good day, you're going to be out. So <laughs> I, and, and the reason, I think the reason we faced um, each other in the second round was because she was out for a while, was injured, wasn't seated and happened to be the second round opponent. And I didn't even remember, like, I don't even remember who my first round opponent was because I was so focused on that second, like every minute since the draw had come out, I was visualizing this match against Lindsay Davenport second round. And I knew that everyone knew that this match was, was the one that they'll be watching. It was a night match. Um, and I, I, I did everything I needed to do to win. I remember I took a nap because it was a, it was a seven, I think it was a seven or seven thirty evening match. And usually in those days I do a little, you know, warm up in the gym, like noon have a little lunch, take a little nap. And I remember waking up from that nap and I was like, it's game time. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I hadn't won the match, but mentally I, I had won it already. What's the match that got away? Like, is there one that keeps you up at night? Um, there's a match. I always reference it, but I think it was a, a really strong um, learning experience was just before that Australian Open. Um, I was in the final of the championships, which is the last tournament of the year. Top eight um, performers of the year um, play this round robin format. And I lost to Justine Hennen, who was a really tricky player and opponent for me. Her game, she just exposed all my weaknesses. She got an extra ball back. She just had this great one-handed backhand. She was low to the ground. Um, just, it was tough. And I, I think it was a three and a half hour match. And I don't know if the match was in my hands and in my racket, but I remember being incredibly upset about it. And I, I was crying after the match. And I, I remember her, her and her team celebrating with champagne and that vision. Just, it, it, it's still, it's still there. Like I still have it clearly in my mind, but I, I took that moment. I, I, 
handled that really well because then I, after beating Lindsay in that Australian Open the second round, I played Justine again in the quarterfinals and I won in two sets. So I did a good I did a good job in, in transitioning that loss and that bad memory into into a good one. So back to today, beyond Sugar Pova, what's um, in the business portfolio? A few things. That's a <laughs> it's a long, uh, a quick question. It might be a long answer. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, look, retirement. The world looked different um, in February than it does today. <laughs> And what I envisioned retirement to be in the in the first you know, seven months um, has certainly played out differently, and, and the world is facing something beyond anyone anyone's vision. And the way that I I look at it is, I had a chance and, st- and and have a chance to spend real quality time and really reintroduce myself to the family life, which is like. I was not exposed to that for a long time. <laughs> and it has been, I, I don't know when I'll ever do that again, when I will be able to have my parents, my boyfriend sit at a dinner table for three months in a row and talk about life and experiences and what we're all about to face, no matter how good or we feel about it, and no matter how like we're all affected in some shape or form. And I think that's what's been so unique about these last few months is we we've all had to handle things so differently mentally at different times, and we've all needed support. And so to to have had that in one on a, at a dinner table um, was really significant and. You know, during that period of time, I saw, you know, my boyfriend make an incredible transition into a new business and a new business model, which has been terrific to see, you know, someone just grind away for 12 hours a day in in a room, in one room, like not getting out only for a snack and some water (laughs) and a hug. Um, And I've loved this period of learning, of curiosity, of introductions and they're strange because they're all virtual and I'm someone that I like to spend time with people like to understand the person is so much more important than, than the actual business, you know, cause when the business fails, but you have a strong person and you have a strong team, I mean that that's going to get you so much further. Like it might not bring you the immediate dollars and the immediate success, but you'll always with great founders, you'll, you'll, smart founders, pragmatic founders, you'll, you'll always find a way to, to reposition and pivot. And, and that's what's been really tough for me is to gauge someone's real vulnerable personality. Um, so it's been a lot of calls, like health and wellness space. I'm, I'm really, I'm interested to see how people are utilizing digital platforms. I mean, I'm, I'm wearing you know, something that tracks my sleep that, you know, monitors heart rate. Um, I have a, you know, a a tonal at home on which I spent five months working out from and, and a bike that, I mean, I, I never thought I needed (laughs) until now. So I'm, I'm also introducing myself to so many different concepts and I'm seeing where, where I, where I can bring value and where I want to bring value. Cause this manner, this idea of management of time when you're done with, with this one thing that you've committed to for so many years is it's a tricky thing to figure out because you don't, you feel like you have so much time. So you want to be involved in it all. But then at the end of the day, you're like, well, I actually didn't, there's someone else that could have, you know, taken care of that for me. I didn't need to, you know, sit through an hour of a call and not have much to say like that that wasn't very informative. So it's really been this management of time and also just, just having like a clear head. I want to learn and I want to continue to grow, but you can't do that when you're constantly on the go and you're constantly doing things. You, You need to step back and give yourself a little bit of time. So it's been an interesting process of finding what that balance really looks like. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, First on the first part in terms of family for me as well, it was a rarity. I got to have dinner with my wife and my kids every night in those moments we would never have gotten. It was 
obviously in the backdrop of this tumultuous world we're in, but from a business perspective, I did think it separated people that were able to really focus in on what it is that they wanted, had a different level of um, commitment and vision because you needed to use that because you were going Zoom after Zoom after Zoom. It was so easy to step out. But if you took advantage of the dead time that you cut out, the wasted small talk, the travel, yeah. the you know, a thinking you have to be somewhere, you know, that like feeling of FOMO. Exactly. That, yeah. And without it, you just cut to like, let's have a conversation and create. But the personal side is lost. Yeah. The, the, and, and also when you meet in person, you you do feel like you can share more and you can be a bit more, I don't know if the right word is vulnerable, but y you can show some crappier emotion than on Zoom, than maybe virtually. Um, th that's been really, that transition has been tough. I mean, I, I met, um, I invested in Supergoop, uh, must be eight years ago now. And, you know, they, they hired a president four years ago and we just met yesterday for the first time in, you know, it might be a year now. And it's just a different, you know, it's a, it's an hour catch up, but the, the validation that you get, the the real thought process that you get in that hour, I'm not sure we could have accomplished in a few virtual calls. So there is, I did feel coming off of that that I'm beginning to miss those those connections with with people that I formed, you know, strong working relationships with. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And then it's like a reset now. So who you let back in and what exactly. you allow yourself to do is now we have no excuse. Like if someone says, oh, I can't stop traveling or I can't <laughs> stop working, you sound crazy because you can balance your life now. People respect it. People expect it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about you, but my biggest challenge is, is that you don't know when you begin and you don't know where you end now. Like when does your day actually begin? Because it just seems like it's a 24-7 availability <laughs> type of aspect, which – we when you're work when you're beginning a work with a brand and you're really in the thick of things that you know personal relationship is really important but on the other hand like how i don't know if that's sustainable what about shark tank are you going to go back on oh hold on i am the biggest shark tank fan and i saw your episode and it was so cool and i really appreciated how you conducted yourself as a businesswoman, amongst those sharks, they can be so mean sometimes. <laughs> and I don't, I don't remember if you took a deal or not, but I do remember your episode. What was it like? Well, I couldn't have gone on the show and not... Imagine going on the show as a guest judge and not doing any deal. <laughs> you know? I don't know. That might be more embarrassing <laughs> than going on the show and, and doing a deal that doesn't succeed. <laughs> so facts. I was, totally right. I was determined to to do a deal and definitely went in there with, with that intention. And I will say, I think Mark Cuban and I got very fortunate that we were both on the, on the panel that evening um, because a, a company named Bala came on board and it was a a husband and, and wife duo um, that were so impressive with their presentation. Um, it's a, it's essentially their, their first product that was on the show were the Bala bangles and they're these hand and wrist, um, ankle and wrist weights that they recreated, you know, which are known to be the old school and no one really wants to wear them anymore. And they designed them so beautifully, um, just aesthetically chic. And I was like, this is an item that you know, now that we have all these home gyms, like I don't want to put in my closet. Like I have them laid out as like jewelry staples <laughs> on my dining table because <laughs> they're so cool. And it was a combination of their success on Shark Tank and, and the deal that we, um, that we were able to strike with, with the company and Mark um, and as well as so many people working, working out from home and outdoors that they are, they're booming. And I'm, I'm so proud of that duo. I do remember that actually. I have a friend that has those. And I, I have to say, I, I was also, I was intimidated on, our, on the first pitch that came through because the one thing you don't realize is when you have five judges and they all have questions, like you, you need to speak up. Like you can't, you can't just sit there. If you have a question, they're not going to just give you a microphone. Like you're going to have to ask them what you want to know. Um, so I was slightly intimidated in the first one, but then I 
think I just raised my voice and, and that was it. What's your, like, how do you balance what deals you're willing to kind of be public facing with and what deals you want to just act as like a strategic investor from the background? Cause we also have to make decisions as we invest in startups and in VC deals where it's appropriate and where you just have the bandwidth. Exactly. I think a couple of things. Um, it all depends on which stage the company's at and, and what they're looking for. I mean, a company might just need financial assets and has a clear direction and a path and you don't need to be actively marketing it. Um, but you're, it's something that you just want to be a part of and, and you want to put money in. Um, most of the time it is finding a way to either raise their profile connect them to the right partners, to the right advisors. I mean, uh, I guess a, a recent example of that is Therabody, a, a brand, um, a percussive therapy brand that is so strong and solid in the United States and currently expanding into Europe and China. Um, and I am helping with that growth. So I'm, I'm on the calls with with retailers, with really strong potential partners in, in all those regions, trying to find the right strategic partner um, to go out to market in China. Um, so it's a balance of what can you bring at certain times, like what I can help with today might, might look different in a year or two time, depending on where the company sits. Um, we invested in Therabody also. And I know that you, uh, also went into Master and Dynamic, which I love. Yes, yes. We have to send you, I have to stock your shelves. Yes, you do. That's one of my favorite brands. That is incredible. We'll have to send you whatever you want. Are you wearing a whoop on your wrist? I am. Did you invest in that company? I did not, but I know that they're currently raising $100 million. They are. <laughs> did you invest in the round? We did, and we invested earlier on, too, in the beginning with Will. Great dude. So you're topping up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I like it. And we're and and we should figure out something to do together one day. Well, you know where to reach me. The Zoom calls. Zoom. You'll be right here. <laughs> um, do you still play tennis? I have not in a while because of my shoulder. Um, I need to do something about it, but I just haven't. I about my shoulder that I I just haven't had the time for. Um, and I also I wanted to give my body a break. And I don't know, like when you're when you know the level you can be at. Like, I don't know if <laughs> the ego in me. <laughs> I hear you. Can we play? You know what would be so cool if you and I played in a pro-am together? Because I'm playing all the time now. Oh, I'd, I'd actually enjoy that. It's funny because tennis is such, a, such an individual sport, but there was like a huge part of me that wanted to play in a team sport. It's, uh, it's such a strange, because um, everyone always considered me this like tough individual sport player um but actually when i would play a few team competitions and there's i mean very rarely i i would leave that week or that weekend and i'd be like wow i had yeah. i had the best time so please invite me in good I, I i never understand why doubles isn't more popular i think it's so fun to watch uh maybe not when i'm playing but <laughs> <laughs> i am the worst doubles player are you <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'll help you. I'll cover I, you at the net. I just, at least, I, I guess I just said it, right? On a podcast. Yeah, you're in. I've got one more question. Of course you do. Do you have a favorite tennis player right now? Ooh, right now. I still like Johnny Mac. <laughs> <laughs> you're pleading the fifth to answer Johnny Mac. Then. No, I have so, I, um, I mean, there are so many. Okay, uh, I mean, I'm incredibly fond of Naomi, and I just love seeing how, you know, how brave and how tough and, and talented she is. Um, I mean, Nadal is one of a kind. I mean, winning his 13th, can you believe it, 13th French Open. Um, you know, I always admired his tenacity, his just this endless fighting spirit and talk about someone that's faced injuries like he was always someone that i looked up to when overcoming um those injuries so yeah but i i do if i can i just watch john McEnroe matches till this day he's still so good 
So good. Another dope answer. I love the way he played. I actually, my style, just as you prepare to play with me, my style is McEnroe-esque, just in terms of... Did you just compare yourself to John McEnroe? Style, style-wise, because the way I approach the net, just like my kind of like the, right, the way I have little spin sometimes on my forehand, like he had very little <laughs> top spin at times. Flat, right? Well, we should leave it at that. Let's leave we'll it at just that. Let, we'll let the audience do the rest. All right. Appreciate it. I will speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you both.